Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Klein, author of the novel Missionaries. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media. And me, the knocker off of Tall Hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Before I hand it over to Phil to tell you what we're talking about this week, I just want to take one second and uh, mention a reader email that we got uh, or listener email that we got. Phil, I don't know if you saw this, but this came in from a fella named Chad Hagelmeyer. Mm-hmm. And did you see this one? No. Uh, very uh, sharp, helpful comment that put things in perspective for me on the quote that I gave. I think it was in the last episode with Lozada where I quoted uh, Emerson and it's actually Harold Bloom quoting Emerson. And the only part that Bloom gives is America is formless, has no terrible and no beautiful condensation. But Chad uh, wrote in to point out that there is a broader context to the Emerson that actually quite fundamentally uh, changes the meaning, shifts the grounds. Uh, well, inside. He, he noted that he didn't want uh, that he wanted to track it down because I don't trust Harold Bloom. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, I couldn't agree with more. I'm realizing, no, it wasn't the Lozada episode. It was the Poe, of course, right? That, it must have been the Poe because uh, that was when Bloom came up, was it? Because Bloom is fundamentally untrustworthy, although he's quite interesting, um, because he badmouthed Poe. So good for you, Chad. You are uh, you're a man of distinction. And I agree with you, Bloom is untrustworthy. But let me let me read just a bit of this because I think it, it does give it quite a different meaning. Alas for America, as I must so often say, the ungirt, the diffuse, the profuse, procumbent, one wide ground juniper, out of which no cedar, no oak will rear up a mast to the clouds. It all runs to leaves, to suckers, to tendrils, to miscellany. The air is loaded with poppy, with imbecility, with dispersion and sloth. Eager, solicitous, hungry, rabid, busy-bodied America, attempting many things. Vain, ambitious, to feel thy own existence and convince others of thy talent by attempting and hastily accomplishing much. Yes, catch my breath and correct thyself and failing here, prosper out there. Speed and fever are never greatness, but reliance and serenity and waiting. America is formless, has no terrible and no beautiful condensation. Genius, always anthropomorphist, runs every idea into a fable, constructs, finishes, as the plastic Italian cannot build a post or a pump handle, but it terminates in a human head. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what <laughs> new meaning is, 
but I do feel, uh, I do feel that the meaning has changed and, and has grown and been enlarged. So, uh, with that out of the way and with thanks to Chad, Phil, what are we dealing with this week? All right. So, um, we're dealing with Jan Kotz, uh, King Lear or Endgame is the manifesto. And for the work of art, we're doing George Oppen's Psalm. Uh, Cot is really interesting, probably mostly known because he was extremely influential to Peter Brook, who is a kind of, you know, extremely important, uh, theater director. Uh, his version of King Lear, uh, that was sort of this sort of big deal and that was later made into a movie, uh, Paul Schofield, um, was directly influenced by this particular essay uh, and the way that it was staged. And um, Cot is interesting. I you know, don't want to give the full bio, but I did come upon one anecdote uh, from his life that I think is maybe worthwhile. Uh, so 1939, he was drafted into the Polish army. So later he would become a you know sort of theater critic and Shakespeare, not so much Shakespeare scholar as somebody who wrote these sort of evocative, intense suggestions about how to, um, uh, how we ought to think about Shakespeare in the, in, in the current, current era and how we ought to stage him in a way that was sort of fitting to the mo- sort of modern society and modern theater. And, but yeah, in 1939, he was drafted in the Polish army. He was active in the defense of Warsaw. And he later told a story about the last weeks of the, uh, guerrilla campaign in Poland after the Warsaw uprising, everything was being destroyed. He was with a unit. I think that that they had uh, 180 men with four machine guns among them. They got surrounded by an army of SS fought for four days and nights. Uh, They tried desperately to escape, had nothing to eat or drink in all the time. On the fifth night, they managed to escape, marched (laughs) about 20 to 25 kilometers encamped at last. His captain assigned him night watch and he fell asleep in the early hours of the morning. Another officer found him falling asleep on guard duty was a very serious offense. A court martial was held the next day. He was sentenced to be shot. Tribunal was held at 6 a.m. He was to be shot at 1. And he, he, he later said, as I remember, I went back to sleep after the sentencing. I was still exhausted and slept like a log. About noon, my captain came to see me. Yannick, he said to me, I'm sorry. We're all extremely sorry, but what can I do? There's no other way. Now, there's an old military custom that if you're going to be shot, you can have a final request, a bottle of vodka, a girl, or a priest. Yannick, because we all love you, will make an exception for you. You can have all three. I was still so tired I had only one wish, to be allowed to sleep up until the time of execution. No girl, no priest, no vodka. Well, maybe that, just before the shot. No one could believe I was so cold-blooded. Half an hour later, medics were sent in. They discovered I was running a very high fever. In fact, I had typhus. When they realized I was ill, they were put in a rather embarrassing position. You can't put a sick man to death. It's against procedure. A man must be in good health to die. Later, a new trial was held, and I was absolved of my crime. In fact, because they were ashamed of having earlier convicted me, they awarded me the highest military honors and sent me back to the hospital. Well, we'll get into it in a second, <laughs> but all of a sudden this essay uh, takes on a different hue. Yeah. <laughs> this essay, which is about, uh, you know, the, the absurdity or seeming implacable absurdity of fate, cruel absurdity of fate, um, aesthetically at least. I mean, that's a hell of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Later he became like an ardent sort of Stalinist. He, uh, he later thought that, you know, like 
his personal salvation was his conviction that history is in the right, that it's going to be proved right, that fascism must be crushed, the Red Army was going to crush it. And then sort of later, in, uh, he was accused of, in the 40s, he was accused of Communist Party deviation. He started drafting these sort of essays about Shakespeare, sort of drifting away from, from communism and developed this analysis for these passionate, bloody productions of Shakespeare that would sort of match... Uh, I think his vision of the cruelty of the world. And yeah, I didn't know God prior to this, but so I, you know, I read his Wikipedia entry. It's basically the only thing I read mm-hmm. about him. Yeah. And the, the line, it's a very poetic line from a Wikipedia entry. <laughs> I, I am, uh, you know, I, I offer praise to whoever penned this one. <laughs> so this is in the middle of his uh, bio section. He praised Joseph Stalin, but mostly concentrated on theater, which I think is you know, a pretty, pretty masterful <laughs> statement on the man and his politics. So he, he did praise Stalin, concentrated on theater, and I guess um, – was was he excommunicated as a deviationist first, or he he, he was he he wasn't like excommunicated. He was sort of sent to Rocklau. Um, I, I suppose he was sort of demoted or, or put on the outs, and then okay, and then yeah, it was in yeah or, ni- in nineteen fifty seven he quit the Communist Party, and then he defected later. I'm not sure when. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, he had an interesting life, um, to be sure, and. This essay is suggestive, I think, um, not of the particular details of his life, but it's suggestive of somebody for whom, um, you know, aesthetics, dramaturgy was not just a parlor game, and you know, or not just a, a question of staging and lighting effects, um, so the, the title is uh, – say, Phil, say the title again. I'm sorry. It's King Lear or Endgame. Right. King Lear or Endgame. Endgame being the Beckett play, which is um, – yeah, I'm not even going to try and describe Endgame. <laughs> it's uh, Incredibly it's, bleak, funny, very funny, but yeah, bleak um, – uh, plotless yeah. play <laughs> about there's less less to hang on to than there is in Waiting for Godot. It's like right. Uh, yeah. So you know, if you found Waiting for Godot overly accessible, maybe <laughs> slightly catering too much to the taste of bourgeois theater goers, Endgame was. Um, but listen, it's it's incredible the. You know, it has a kind of Endgame has a kind of um, there's a language poetry to it. Yeah. You know, some like the New York School poets. Um, you, you get these sort of touches of Beckett and some of what they do, which is part of what I always liked, I guess, both about Beckett and some of the New York School poets. But it's it's setting up in this um, in this comparison juxtaposition of Lear and Endgame, the difference historically, um, philosophically, ontologically between tragedy 
and the grotesque. Yeah. Uh, I would say that's the heart of it, right? And and arguing that King Lear would sort of in another era, right, in the Romantic era, you could sort of play King Lear as melodrama, right? Um, but in the modern era, I think he thinks that we can actually get to the core of what Shakespeare was dealing with. But K- King Lear is not melodrama, and it's not a real tragedy, right? That it makes mockery of tragedy would be his argument. And ultimately, he thinks, you know, the grotesque is more cruel than tragedy, and you need to um, to stage the play in a way that allows the kind of grotesque elements to emerge. And by the grotesque, what he's talking about is, um, you know, it's sort of the kind of classic tragedies, right? Like sort of Antigone, right? Where they're kind of two characters, each upholding different values, right? Um, and that, you know, we're sort of impossible to choose between the two. Um, and in the grotesque, the sort of your, you know, and, and tragedy, you know, the sort of the fates or the gods, um, in the grotesque, there are no the fates or the gods. The, the absolute is transformed into a blind mechanism, kind of automatons, right? Tragedy brings catharsis, while grotesque offers no consolation whatsoever. And the example that he uses, he first brings up, um, and this is, you know, it's worth, this is an essay that I think he started drafting in the 1950s, right? Um, and ultimately showed to Peter Brook in the early 1960s. He talks about a man playing chess against a computer and um, where, you know, he, the man has played, uh, has sort of fed into the machine, uh, you know, algorithms or whatever it is that allows the, the, the chess machine to play better than him. And you imagine a man who must play chess with an electronic computer. He can't leave, he can't break the game, and he's going to lose the game. His defeat is just because it's affected according to the rules of the game. He loses because he has made a mistake, but he could not have won, right? And he says, a man losing the chess game with an electronic computer is not a tragic hero anymore. All that is left of tragedy is the concept of unmerited guilt, the inevitable defeat, and unavoidable mistake. But the absolute has ceased to exist. It has been replaced by the absurdity of the human situation. And so the grotesque is where, instead of sort of these kind of transcendental values or the gods or fate or nature and history, these kind of powerful transcendent forces. You're just, you have human beings trapped in an absurd mechanism, a trap set by man himself into which he has fallen. And there can't be any dignity in that. Yeah. So it's, I'm going to come back to absurdity in a second because there's a, a particular meaning of absurdity. It's a term of art for Camus and for the existentialists and acquires a very particular meaning uh, that it is actually uh, distinct from how it's being used here. But yeah, listen, the, the, the point is that the tragic requires the existence of the values that are in conflict. The tragic mm-hmm. situation is one in which uh, two legitimate ends are irreconcilable, right? Uh, where, you know, this is the, the cruelty of um, 
the cruelty of a fate that we can't escape. But the grotesque is fatedness in a world without legitimate ends, because without the absolute, that conflict between values loses all meaning. The the values unmoored from the absolute are no longer really values at all. They're just these sort of comic uh, misunderstandings uh, that, you know, comic quickly turning into macabre or grotesque misunderstandings. And uh, the, the other line in that part that you read, uh, Phil, about the, the absolute is transformed into a blind mechanism, a kind of automatons is mockery is directed not only at the tormentor, but also at the victim right. who believed in the tormentor's justice, raising himself to the level of the absolute. The victim has consecrated his tormentor by recognizing himself as the victim. Um, but, you know, the existence of tormentor victim requires a, a, a mediating principle between them or a transcendent principle that orders the two of them in relation to one another, an order that has some meaning beyond simply scale or size or, or other expressions of, uh, you know, principally amoral qualities of existence. This is, you know, this is the, the this is sort of very similar to where, the, the idea of the absurd winds up this idea of the grotesque, except that you know, for Camus, the absurd is where everything starts. So the kind of the, the beginning, you know, Camus has this famous, uh, famous formulation about the, the desperate encounter between human inquiry and the silence of the universe, right? And that's the absurdity because the human agent insists on meaning in a meaningless world. And the kind of principle and, and in insisting on meaning thereby creates meaning. That's the kind of Camus, Camusian position and some of the existentialists. So, you know, that term gets applied to people who think very different things. You know, Sartre's position is fundamentally different, but uh, in insisting on the legitimacy of the counter in deciding not to, to commit suicide, which is the sort of founding position of man in a godless universe. This is for Camus. Man discovers himself in the modern world, having killed uh, first his Kings and then his gods you know, regicide leads to deicide in, in the Camus kind of historical sketch. Uh, having found himself in that position, he now confronts a universe in which he still understands himself uh, as, uh, you know, a, a being capable of um, achieving something that transcends his own mortality um, and who still believes in a universe in which there is some meaning beyond himself, discovers that this is not the case, uh, but nevertheless can't give up 
on that meaning, which is not only accidental, but essential to his nature. And in that confrontation, by deciding not to kill himself, right, um, which is sort of the logical next step, that's where uh, the generation of real values, and there's a Nietzschean quality to this, obviously, but that's where the generation of real values comes from. True values are born out of that uh, acceptance of the absurdity, but that's not, I think, maybe tell me if I'm wrong here. I think that the grotesque is different. And I would say that the major difference I find is that Camus position has less to do with the deterministic nature of the universe for one thing. So there's still a kind of blind chance or there's an element of blind chance. This is part of what a absurdism is about is that the blind chance, whereas for, for, you know, for Cot, it's the clockwork universe, the famous kind of clockwork universe, but without God, like nobody's right. set the clock. You but, set but, your own clock. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the clock that we have created, right? It's like, it's not nature. It's the chess machine that beats you at chess that you yourself beat, built to beat you at chess, right? Um, he, and then he moves on from the chess machine to the barrel of laughs, right? Which is like, um, it's like a, uh, it's like a, you know, the, like a park ride, like a fair, uh, like a county fair ride where they have a, a group of people try and keep their balance uh, while an upturned barrel revolves on its axis, right? And so you can only keep your balance by moving on the bottom in the opposite direction and with the same speed as the barrel's movement, right? Which is tricky, right? So if you move too fast or too slow, you're going to fall. Um, and he says, the barrel is put in motion by a motor, which is transcendental in relation to it. However, one may easily imagine a barrel that is set in motion by the people inside it, by those who manage to preserve their balance and by those who fall over. A barrel like this would be imminent. Its movements would, of course, be variable. Sometimes it would revolve in one direction, sometimes in the other. It would be even more difficult to preserve one's balance in a barrel like this. One would have to change step all the time, move forwards and backwards, faster or slower. In such an imminent barrel, many more people would fall over. But neither those who fall because they move too fast nor those who fall because they move too slow are tragic heroes. They're just grotesque. They will be grotesque even if there is no way out of this imminent barrel. The social mechanism shown in most of this one playwright's plays, Adamov plays, is very much like the barrel of laughs. And he thinks that's the world we've created, right? That the the sort of, <laughs> you know, Camus, it's like the world is absurd, uh, and so then we create meaning on top of it. This is, in some response, a response to the things that we have created in response to the world are those which are sort of... <laughs> turning us into grotesque right but i I think that the the thing where there's a slight misalignment there is that i think what kat is saying is that it's the the residue of a sense the the things we create now which build this kind of automaton prison that creates the grotesque still belong to a time in which or are relics of a time in which people still believed that there was order and meaning and mastery or or nature that you know i i this is actually 
this is much more aesthetic at points than it is philosophical, which is actually part of what I like about this essay. So it's when you read the essay, uh, you'll see it's not, there are parts of it that are, you know, I think brilliant and, uh, or analytically clear, but a lot of it is not, it's not attempting to be a kind of rigorous exposition of a philosophical no. uh, position. It's, it's highly aesthetic and in part it's very interested in, in large part, it's, it's interested in what gives proper staging to the grotesque. So right. what the proper aesthetic of the grotesque is, which I think is actually um, you know, we'll get to this uh, soon. I'm sure I, it's actually to me the best part of the essay. But in that, it's it's a bit different, right? Or maybe I'm mis- maybe I, I was confused actually. Like, it, is Cott's position? Or I was uncertain. Rather, is Cott's position that even in recognition of the grotesque, it's still inescapable? Um, I, th- I think he thinks – well, so this gets to his bit on like the clowns versus the priests, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and I think that <clears> – <throat> so he has this – he quotes, a, I think, a Polish philosopher. Um, You're talking about the Kolakowski at the end? Uh, yeah, let's see. On the Fool. Um, let, me, let me find it real quick. Uh, so he – yeah. Yeah, Kolakowski. Yeah, he's um, the Lesek uh, Kolakowski is the great, uh, you know, historian of Marxism, currents of Marxism. Uh, is brilliant. But, ah, I've never read him. I yeah, have no idea who he was. The main currents of Marxism. Yeah, so he talks about the Kolakowski talks about the irreconcilable antagonism between the priest and the clown. And Cobb says tragedy is the theater of priests. The grotesque is the theater of clowns. Right. Um, and so when established values have been overthrown and there is no appeal to God, nature, or history from the tortures inflicted by the cruel world, the clown becomes the central figure in the theater. And I think that the, what, you know, the best that you can do is be a fool who has recon- recognized himself for a fool, who has accepted the fact that he is only a jester in the service of the prince. Then he ceases to be a clown. The clown's philosophy is based on the assumption that everyone is the fool and the greatest fool is he who does not know he is a fool, the prince himself. Um, and so he describes King Lear as sort of madness is in King Lear of philosophy, a conscious crossing over to the position of the clown. The fool knows that the only true madness is to recognize the world as rational. But what does that get you? I mean, th- right. I understand that. Uh, to what end? Uh, like to, okay, so you've achieved uh, – clarity on your own condition which is obviously worth doing and on the condition of existence to some extent but uh does that change the nature of that existence at all that this is where i'm not so i don't know i think there's a new york times review of the 1962 king lear um this is the brook king this lear. is the brook king lear that was inspired by this essay um and uh, the, you know, the, you know, there's sort of these fateful mechanics by which Lear is set free in a universe that is quite as cold and terrifying as that in which Beckett's characters find themselves trashed in ash camps. At the end he says, Lear dies grotesquely but unhumiliated, which according to Brooke is as much of a victory as can ever be achieved by a magnificent clown. 
Read that one more time, Phil. Lear dies grotesquely but unhumiliated, which, according to Brooke, is as much of a victory as can ever be achieved by a magnificent clown. Right. I, <laughs> yeah. He should strive very, very hard in the face of uh, Job-like trials so that you can achieve the victory of being unhumiliated. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Okay. So leaving that aside for a second, because I'm going to start spinning my wheels. I mean, I'm just, I'm not sure. It seems to me that he entertains different possibilities and that, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that there needs to be a, like affirmative teleological uh, resolution to this. Um, but it is interesting, actually, just as a side note, you know, in, in the early stagings of Lear, which is based on a, a much older, uh, actually older series of myths, but there were like happy ending versions yeah. of Lear, you know, this? yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the thing that really fascinated me and I found, you know, the, this, this contrast between the tragic and the grotesque I found really fascinating and made me immediately think, um, of course, or, or I wonder, can you guess like, what was the thing literary wise? O'Connor. Uh, precisely. Yeah. Very different uh, sense of the grotesque. So we have to get back to this because this uh, O'Connor has like almost the obverse. I mean, it's almost like a precise, you know, uh, inversion in that for O'Connor, the grotesque is actually an affirmation of the sacred, um, that the, an affirmation of the sacred, that the people who are, um, uh, more denatured lose the ability to apprehend, uh, because of their hyper rationalism, yep. um, which makes them blind. Whereas the grotesque is a vision of their fictional qualities lean away from typical social patterns toward mystery and the unexpected. It is this kind of realism that I want to consider. All novelists are fundamentally seekers and describers of the real, but the realism of each novelist will depend on his view of the ultimate reaches of reality. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it's because we're still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still, in the main, theological. Yeah, there's a part right after that that's incredible um, to be returned to. But yeah, that's uh, – so that is uh, – what is it? Some thoughts on uh, the grotesque in Southern fiction? It's Yeah, it's in Mystery and Manners. Um, but it's a speech she gave yeah. that, um, mm -hmm. at uh, some kind of Southern literary conference. And look up – anyone interested, look up Flannery O'Connor. Uh, grotesque southern fiction it's an incredible speech essay uh that it turned into yeah but what i want what i wanted to hit before we come uh, a bit more to say about o'connor but the thing that i think maybe was the most interesting part of this essay to me the cot was the way he conceives of the staging of yeah. the grotesque and so what he so he first sets up this uh, distinction between the 
tragic and the grotesque, which we've just spent some time on. And then he expounds on the nature of the grotesque, which is this deterministic system we ourselves build and then lock ourselves inside of bleak stuff, you know, (laughs) dark, 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 dark stuff, especially, you know, you read the, um, the man playing chess against an automaton that he built that will only ever keep beating him. And, and, um, there's some very uncomfortable, uh, resonances there with, uh, the current state of technology and and our relationship (laughs) to it. Such machines are all around us, Jake. Yes. Uh, some might say, um, we are inside of them and them inside of us, but okay. So they, uh, then it gets to like this question of how, uh, you know, in, in what's the dramaturgic, is that how you say it? In, dramaturgic, you, I have no idea. Yeah. I think that's the right way. The, like, how would you stage this for a play is the sort of fundamental question. And, and what he's talking about here is, so he starts off with this idea that, you know, Lear had originally been staged in this, uh, romantic staging that gave it this sort of high, tragic melodrama. Sturm und Drang, yeah. Yeah, Sturm und Drang. And then you get closer to the, I think, what he sees as the truth of, of Shakespeare's lyric, which is, you know, for me, I mean, it is the greatest of Shakespeare's yeah. plays, I think, or it's at least it's the one that is the most like mysterious and contains everything and is different every time you read it and seems like the whole world is cracking apart. You know what I mean? Like it contains the whole world and the sky is splitting open inside. And there's something so enormous and terrifying about it and um, so many different ways to read it. But so, but the question becomes like how do you how do you stage this and so in thinking about how this is staged what he um what he's trying to get at i think is um it, it's the question of like what gives the grotesque its uh what expresses the grotesque, what carries the nature and feeling of the grotesque or conveys the kind of essence of the grotesque and naturalism doesn't do it. Yeah. He said, you know, the exposition of King Lear is preposterous, right? Like it's not psychologically like you you don't find psychological verisimilitude in it. Um, And if you try to impose that, you've, You've ruined it. You've turned it into something else. And then there's like attempts to do like the way it was staged originally. But he he rejects that because he says, basically he thinks like Shakespeare only matters in dialogue with the current moment, right? He says, um, the theaters in which Shakespeare's plays have been produced were in turn influenced by contemporary plays. Shakespeare has been a living influence insofar as contemporary plays through which his dramas were interpreted were a living force themselves. When Shakespeare is dull and dead on the stage, it means that not only the theater, but also plays written in that particular period are dead. Mm, yeah. Right. But like if theater matters, then Shakespeare will still matter. But if, if, if there's no sort of living current of theater, if it's just a, a collection of museum pieces, then, then, um, you know, Shakespeare won't matter either. 
And so there's something about the current modern climate that needs to be captured. And there's a sort of interesting way he gets at this with he spends a lot of time on the sort of fake, the pantomime of Gloucester's suicide. Yeah, I'm looking for what to read from that that conveys that there's no single kind of... Well, I, 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 I've got... So, like, Gloucester is being led by his son who is in disguise, right? He doesn't know, and Gloucester has just been... Uh, had his eyes plucked out in this sort of exceptionally cruel scene. And the way that it's staged is, you know, so they threaten to pluck out Gloucester's eyes. And I forget who it was, but I was reading one description of this, like... As an audience, like you want certain things, you want certain types of drama. So when the when the idea of Gloucester's eyes being plucked out um, is first raised on stage, as an audience member, you want to see it, right? Um, otherwise, it would be a sort of Chekhov's gun left right. unfired. Right. But the way that Shakespeare does it in Lear is he pulls out one eye, then is stopped, right? And then some of the ser- you know servants like revolt. And then he goes back and, and he like crushes one of the eyes under his under his foot and plucks out the other. So by the time you get to the final stage, you as the audience member no longer dramatically sort of in terms of like the sort of what you expect dramatically, no longer want that final eye to get plucked out. And it it feels very different than if it was done at once. Um, and it's just sort of very dramatically painful as an audience member, right? Um, to be put through. And so Gloucester is, is brutally treated. Um, and then in Lear, in Shakespeare's Lear, the servants who had tied Gloucester to the chair then sort of like lead him away nicely. Like it's clear they feel bad for him. In the Peter Brook version, they kick him off stage, um, which uh, provoked the ire of a lot of theater critics. They thought it was. Um, I have a lot what, of problems. kind of wanton. Well, you know, so I had a, a Shakespeare professor, Peter Satcho, who talked about this as saying that having the servants kick Lear off stage was just the modern version of like the Victorian era producing Lear, but having Cordelia hmm. live at the end. Right. 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 Was that, that like, the thing he said it in relation to, I remember you saying that before. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mentioned this. Yeah. It's specifically the Peter Brook pr- production because he said, look, <laughs> like, if but it's specifically go, about Gloucester getting that specifically the, about the eye because having the it, servants kick yeah. him off stage, right? Because if you go, if you overdo the bleakness, right? We as audience members no longer feel the terrifying recognition of reality because we know that human beings are not like that actually, right? Um, most of us, most of us are the kind of people who, in the right circumstances would tie Gloucester to the chair, but then feel bad about it afterwards and be kind to him. Right. Um, most of us are neither heroes nor villains and that you sort of, you push it too far and it actually is more comforting to watch because you sort of appreciate it from an arty darkness, but it doesn't have that kind of terrifying thrill of or sort of feel. And this is, I think the terror of Lear where you you're watching it and you're thinking like, is this reality? Right. Is this what the world is? Um, and but the, the terrifying reality requires, or specifically the, the scene on the cliffs. What's fascinating right. about it? Oh yeah, yeah. So so then he's yeah he's leading him to the cliff, 
and his and he wants Gloucester wants to commit suicide, and his son tells him that he's led him to a cliff, um, and then he like falls like a foot, and he tells him that he like has survived, right? And so it's not a suicide; it's a pantomime of a suicide. You're saying, yeah, but right, it's a pantomime of a suicide that would be ruined by an overly naturalistic attempt to convey this false climb right a cliff because the point is the artificiality so it's a son pretending to be a madman uh leading a blind man up a fake cliff and um it so it it's this is the line that that he uses the non-existent cliff is not just meant to deceive the blind man for a short while we too believed in this landscape and in the mime um the meaning of this parable is not easy to define but one thing is clear this type of parable is not to be thought of outside of the theater or rather outside a certain kind of theater oh you sir friend hear you sir speak thus might he pass indeed (laughs) what are you sir away and let me die had thou been aught but but gossamer feathers air so many fathom down precipitating thou'd shivered like an egg but thou dost breathe hast heavy substance bleeds not speaks art sound thy life's a miracle Speak yet again. But have I fallen or no? From the dread summit of this chalky bourne, look up a height. The, the shrill gorge lark so far cannot be seen or heard. Do but look up. Alack, I have no eyes. Is wretchedness deprived that benefit to end itself by death? And, and the, the kind of... Can, can I read a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, sure. The stage must be empty. On it, a suicide, or rather its symbol, has been performed. Mime is the performance of symbols. It is the abyss, waiting all the time. The abyss, into which one can jump, is everywhere. Gloucester's suicidal leap is tragic, but the pantomime performed by the actors on the stage is grotesque and has something of a circus about it. The blind Gloucester who has climbed a non-existent height and fallen over on flat boards is a clown. A philosophical buffoonery has been performed of the sort found in modern theater. Yeah, okay, and one more piece. In the naturalistic theater, one can perform a murder scene or a scene of terror. The shot may be fired from a revolver or a toy pistol, but in mime, there is no difference between a revolver and a toy pistol. In fact, neither exist. Like death, The shot is only a performance, a parable, a symbol. So here you have mime as the nature of the grotesque in that the, you know, there is no, in mime, there is no difference between the the revolver and the toy pistol, right? So whereas in, in tragedy, there's the conflict between hard, irreconcilable ends the the mime pantomime conveys the grotesque insofar as 
it takes the essential unreality, the essential contingency of everything for granted. All symbols are interchangeable. They, you know, they all are, all symbols are interchangeable and they're all pointing to the emptiness of the referent ultimately that there's nothing there's there. That's the, the nature of the grotesque, you know, now he tacks on something about how if you're honest about this, you emerge unhumiliated, but, uh, but you know, bleak stuff, uh, but, but also compelling and something very true and, um, you know, why you ask yourself, like, why is mime so kind of, if you've ever seen like, uh, you know, an effective kind of pantomime, why is it so spooky? There's a, an incredible spookiness to it. Um, you know, it sort of destabilizes like the ordinary relationship between physical objects and their symbolic meaning. Do you, I, I find this essay fascinating, but I, I guess I would, do you buy this as a description of Lear as a whole? Um, partly, uh, I think it's overdetermined. I mean, no, I don't buy it as a whole. He's got, an idea of the grotesque and he's going to make every aspect of it. You know, I, I actually I'll put it to you this way. Now I've never seen Lear performed on the stage. I've seen mm. the film. I've never seen it on stage. I've read it and I've seen the film, but never on stage. I, I thought it was most convincing. I totally bought his point about why that, that part we just read, I bought a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Why this needs to be a pantomime? Yeah, I thought why this needs to be a pantomime. I, I thought was unimpeachable, and to me, the kind of highlight of the essay. The larger, and I also found his, I I found his um, explanation of the grotesque uh, compelling and worthwhile. I didn't ultimately think that, you know, I don't find this to be the, the most insightful or final reading of Lear, but I thought it it captured an element of Lear perfectly though. Yeah, I think I think it's that and I think, you know, he'd probably say that he's not trying to capture all of Lear, right? Like he's very interested in staging and you sort of get it in that bit about the modern theater. He's interested in Shakespeare insofar as it's going to be able to talk to current plays, right? What's alive right now for him, Beckett's Endgame is alive. And those, and that resonates with certain aspects of Lear that he wants to really bring out and that he feels have been underdeveloped and he sort of can't stand a lot of the productions of Lear. Apparently his, theater criticism was blunt and brutal um uh but there's (laughs) there are other things in Lear. there's um uh ac bradley um responding to i think swinburne had a similar kind of bleak take on Lear, and responding to him said uh 
Man is not represented in these tragedies as the mere plaything of a blind or capricious power, suffering woes which have no relation to his character and actions, nor is the world represented as given over to darkness. Its keynote is surely to be here, uh, heard neither in the words wrung from Gloucester in his anguish, nor in Edgar's words, the gods are just. Its final and total result is one in which pity and terror, carried perhaps to the extreme limits of art, are so blended with a sense of law and beauty that we feel at last not depression and much less despair, but a consciousness of greatness and pain and of solemnity in the mystery we cannot fathom. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that note of solemnity in the mystery we cannot fathom. Um, see, I was, I was going to, quote that and then lead us to O'Connor. Um, but I think that O'Connor is on to something in what she sees um, the grotesque leading to. And I think it's actually very significant that she suggests, you know, the Southerner has a theological conception of man. Jan Kott, I don't think does, right? No, and, no, he has an anti-theological conception of man. Absolutely. Um, and then the question is, is that anti-theological conception of man enough? Does it actually capture the totality of man? Is there something left over? Is there something missing? And if not, you need something more from, <laughs> you need more, something more from life and more from King Lear uh, than you're going to find expressed in, in King Lear Endgame. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say about this. I'm thinking for the moment about what it would mean to apply this in practice and, you know, performing end game <laughs> in your head. <laughs> so I, I mean, I'm not sure to live a, a life more Beckett like, um, or Beckett, Beckett character like. It's, you know, look, if you were to, if you were to accept that you've created a pointless prison from which there is no escape, but within which there is a slightly more privileged vantage uh, by recognizing the shape and nature of the prison. And, uh, and if that was enough for you, you know, or if you thought that that was all that was available to you, I suppose that would be the thing you had to do. You, you know, you'd have to, you would have to reconcile yourself to that. That seems to me to be not all there is, uh, you know, limited in its, um, limited in its sense of, or, or I'll put it, limited is the wrong word, over-determined in its sense of man's relationship to the world around him. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, in, in that way, uh, there, there are many prisons. <laughs> you know, we, we don't get to make all of them. <laughs> and, and there is more than, uh, there are many prisons, we don't make all of them, and there is more than just unhumiliation yeah. available. The uh, the psalm at Mass, uh, Psalm 85, mm. uh, where one of the phrases from it, because I was thinking about this, <laughs> um, kindness and truth have met, justice and peace have kissed. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, pair of lines. Um, 
but it it's <laughs> it um it's, it, it seems a sort of implicit recognition in that psalm that kindness and truth do not always meet and justice and peace are not always together. Um, and what do you mean that psalm from Mass? You say that psalm every Mass? No, uh, every Mass, yeah, there's a different psalm that you do okay. a slight yeah. reading from, and that was one of the that was one of the readings from 85. There's a, every Mass has a psalm? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I think to 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 note that that uh, w- you know uh, we're often caught in sort of <laughs> agonistic struggles where where those things are at odds or seemingly utterly unavailable doesn't um, uh, doesn't mean that they're not those occasions when when th- you know when kindness and truth do meet <laughs> or justice and peace do kiss where you know. Uh, all is not quite as bleak and there's sort of real uh, sort of beautiful mysteries to be um, appreciated. Uh, or at least mysteries, you know, yeah. even if they're not always beautiful, at least mm-hmm. mysteries, at least something yeah. um, beyond our, beyond our making, beyond our ken. Um, the Psalms are in what language? In English, in, in English. Yeah. In English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder how they how would they come across in Latin? I was trying to think. It's it seems like so unsuited to Latin. Uh, I don't know, but you know, people who um, you know people who grew up on um, on the Latin Mass, like it's it, it was it was very clearly um, like this really powerful um, powerful thing for people. Um, and, you know, there's like a, you know, the rhythms of it, uh, for, you know, writers like Don DeLillo or whatever, um, uh, were clearly like a part of, of, of their kind of sort of rhythm and poetic sensibility. There's a, there's a, an essay, uh, Claire Massoud's latest essay collection is superb. And she has an essay on there on Camus in Algeria. Um, and, her father was a, was it Pied Noir? What is it? French Pied Noir. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the essay on Camus, Camus in Algeria begins, One Christmas when I was in my early 20s, my mother, my sister, and I returned home from midnight services to find my deeply private and resolutely lapsed father watching John Paul II's Mass at St. Peter's on television, his fa- face wet with tears. Distressed to see him thus, we asked why he was crying. Because when I last heard the mass in Latin, he replied, I thought I had a religion and I thought I had a country. Hmm. Hmm. Well, my friend, <laughs> speaking of Psalms, we have uh, the poem yeah. by George Oppen, simply entitled Psalm, which does start with a line of Latin. It's so short, Phil. Do you want to just read it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let me uh, let me pull it up. Veritas sequitur. Yeah, from Aquinas, um, and it's from this collection, this in which nineteen sixty-five. So, hmm. Veritas sequitur, um, which is truth. Truth follows, and the line is, Veritas sequitur esse re, truth follows from the being of things, 
is the phrase. Mm. Okay. In the small beauty of the forest, the wild deer bedding down, that they are there. Their eyes, effortless, the soft lips, nuzzle, and the alien small teeth tear at the grass. The roots of it dangle from their mouths, scattering earth in the strange woods. They who are there. Their paths, nibbled through the fields, the leaves that shade them, hang in the distances of sun. The small nouns crying faith in this in which the wild deer startle and stare out. So that is George Oppen's psalm. Um, Oppen, I dig it. Yeah, it's great. He's phenomenal. And I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna begin with another uh, another World War II story from Oppen's life. Yeah. Um, because it's one of the reasons, one of several reasons that I paired these two. So Oppen was from a sort of wealthy diamond merchant family. Uh, though he had a sort of traumatic childhood, his mother committed suicide. His father remarried a woman who um, seemed to have abused him. Uh, he was sort of founded a the Objectivist Press with a couple of other poets. He was in the Objectivist. Ezra Pound was an earlier backer of his. Ezra Pound wrote a preface to Oppen's first book of poems in the 30s. It's, it's an incredibly like, douchebaggy preface, too, uh, where Ezra Pound makes a point of noting that like um, there are things that he sees in this poem that you, the reader, aren't going to see. Actually, I'm just reading this. I see a difference. But I see the difference between the writing of Mr. Oppen and Dr. Williams. It's William Carlos Williams. I do not expect any great horde of readers to notice it. They will perhaps concentrate, or no, they will not concentrate. They will coagulate their rather gelatinous attention on the likeness. Which, you know, anyway, as we're found. Sorry. It just amused me to know it. sounds like, yeah. yeah. So, so he published his book of poems, but then he joined the Communist Party as the Depression hit, joined the Communist Party, and stopped writing, right? Uh, as uh, Elliot Weinbarter, he was perhaps the only party writer anywhere who had never written stirring doggerel or prose pop propaganda, who had both doubted the efficacy of poetry in hungry times and had resisted the party's manipulation of the arts, who believed that the proper role of a party member was no different for a writer or a factory worker, that the work to be done was agitation and organization in which poetry could have no place without compromising itself. Um, so uh, they, you know, participated in protests, relief efforts for the poor. Uh, he eventually was drafted into World War II. He saw active combat and was ultimately severely injured. Um, uh, lying wounded in a foxhole, foxhole the um, uh, shell killed two other people in his foxhole. He was surrounded by injured and dying. Uh, he buried his dog tags, which would have identified him as Jewish to the nearby enemy, uh, Nazis. And he wouldn't write poetry again until 1958. So, and then, yeah. Yeah, I know him um, mostly because he was palled up with uh, Louis Zukowski, who was another mm -hmm. one of the objectivists who I used to really like. Um, who Zukowski is a, also New York Jew, but was a like Lower East Side garment worker, uh, working class. So, um, you know sort of the opposite end from the uh, rich diamond dealers, but they wound up together in the, in this objectivist 
scene that they were both in, which produced, I think, some very, um, some really good poetry, like the little movements of poetry, um, you know, especially like objectivism, you know, Zukovsky had some of the same thing. I like that he uses noun Mm -hmm. in this poem, (laughs) small nouns, you know, they're good with their nouns. They get, uh, they get, you know, I, I, I try to write poetry sometimes and I realize like, uh, it's actually all just the nouns. It's poetry is, you have to pick all the right nouns. Oh, yeah. So uh, he, when he would write, like, um, he was sort of obsessive about revising his lines and he would paste words on top of another until the poem was like literally thick with words, right? Uh, you know, all these discarded words in favor of the alternative pasted at the very top. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I, mean, I don't get that from it necessarily. <laughs> so I, I'm surprised to hear that actually. But you know, I like the uh, look. If if part of the idea of objectivism, and it's been a long time since I've um, read and and been thinking about this stuff, but I still recall some of it. And, you know, it was related to this idea of you know the the kind of evocation of imagery which was uh the imagery was the meaning and the point was to um evoke the images that would create the meaning um yeah and i think that's a fair um you know there were other aspects of its poetics but i think that's part of it and so i like the papering over stuff seems to me um cluttering the image but i guess you know the, the clutter is how you get to the distillation right you know he also so you know he started out with the objectivist but then didn't write for like 30 years and mm. he started writing after he'd been in mexico um because fleeing from the how you know because he was a communist the house on american activities you know, whatever whatever it was um uh and he read actually jacques martin the catholic yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, uh, he read his, and, and Oppen was not religious. Uh, I don't know about, him. of course, actually, but Martin is an absolutely fascinating. Yeah, we, we need writer. to do some Martin. Yeah. Um, he read uh, Creative Intuition by Martin, right? And actually, his first post break book begins with a quote from that book We awake in the same moment to ourselves and to things. And so he had this sort of, you know, he would sort of borrow from theological language in one of his, his um, like day book entries. He wrote the mystery for me begins where it begins for Aquinas. The individual encounters the world. And by that encounter with something which he recognizes as being outside himself, he becomes aware of himself as an individual, a part of reality. In that same intuition, he registers the existence of what is not himself, what is totally independent of him, can exist without him, as it must have existed before him, as it will exist after him, and is totally free of nothingness and death, which is for Aquinas the intuition of God. It is, at any rate, the intuition of the indestructible. So wait, this is Oppen on Maritain? Oppen writing in his daybook after reading Maritain, yeah. Interesting. Do you know what Maritain it was he read? The creative intuition. Yeah. 
Interesting. Interesting. Um, Creative intuition and art and poetry. Yeah. So, you know, he's, uh, he's big on persons, Maritain. It's yeah. funny. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm always meaning to bring him up, but he developed this idea. What was it? Personism or personalism? Or personism. Something? Personism. Yeah. Personism, which he got. Versus from, the notion which, of the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which Maritain developed from reading Aquinas. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I dig it. Uh, I like it. I, I approve of it. Uh, dig is a, a an informal jive colloquialism, but uh, but I like it. And I've thought that we should do something on that. I, you know, I don't know, man. I'm not trying to avoid discussing this lovely little <laughs> poem about deers in the forest. I just, it, it really speaks for itself. Uh, you know, it's like. Um, the wild deer bedding down that they are there. Yeah. Um, that they are there exclamation point. Right. And that then they, reiterated, they, they were there. Exclaim that, that they are there, their eyes effortless, the soft lips nuzzle and the alien small teeth tear at the grass. Alien is good there. Yeah. Um, the roots of it dangle from their mouths, scattering earth in the strange woods. They who are there, I don't know about strange. Um, strange might be wrong, but um, their paths nibbled through the fields. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Their paths nibbled through the fields, the leaves that shade them hang in the distances of sun. Maybe that's the best stanza there. Mm. Their paths nibbled through the fields, the leaves that shade them hang in the distances of sun. Very good. Just a poem like this, you know, you could write something about it. It's sort of hard to talk about. Yeah. it's. I mean, it just immediately strikes me as beautiful and it could be easily cloying, but it isn't right. Um, And there's something about the like broken syntax, um, the way that like the, the, the lines don't match up sort of grammatically where sort of what feels like it should be sort of, relating or describing to a previous line doesn't seem to do that perfectly um somehow adds to it these kind of like mysterious gaps that he gets at that kind of sense of wonder and strangeness um against that sort of sort of simple beauty and the i love the alien small teeth tear at the ground yes simple beauty but also the like experiential uh, experiential estrangement of like, w- what is it like to be a deer? You know, yeah. it's uh, half of it is kind of uh, from the perspective following in the path of the deer, and very, very effective in that way. You know, you can see it uh, the deer in the clearing staring out. Um, staring out with the, you know, eyes that are simultaneously blank and piercing through you. And, um, yeah, I like it. I just, uh, it's, a, a, you know, it's a poem that contains its virtues and its formal qualities, right? It's right. like uh, everything good about this is in the line and the sound and the images. Yeah. He, um, once said, I'm really concerned with the substantive, with the subject of the sentence, with what we are talking about and not rushing over the subject matter in order to make a comment about it. 
It is still the principle with me of more than poetry to notice, to state, to lay down the substantive for its own state. And that, I think that, you know, I'm concerned with the substantive, with the subject of the sentence, right? Before you sort of try and get to your, your fancy ideas about it. Um, and it gets at that. Um, there's another interview where, where somebody asked him about, you know, whether the poetic response was not to respond intellectually or discursively, but only to the physical tangibility or reality of the object he views. And Oppen agreed and he said, yes, if one knows what physical means or what it contrasts with, but responds by faith, as I admitted somewhere, into his own experience. And he's, um, <laughs> you know, he's not talking about religious faith, but that there's a kind of response to the world that is not about sort of the imposition of theory on it. Right. And he's trying to find a form that gets you into that, that space, um, sort of prior to all those things that, that, that you then want to load on top of, uh, on top of it. Yeah. I got to read more of his stuff. Uh, I, it's really good. I don't think I've, um, read much. My whole recollection of him of him is really, you know, just sort of in relation to Zukowski. So I've got to, this made me want to read more. And it sounds like from a little, I saw, like you were saying, he broke with, uh, the objectivists and didn't write poetry for decades. So I probably, um, you know, my associations with him probably actually don't make any sense. It seems like that was a, a kind of brief early relationship that wasn't, uh, wasn't what was driving the later work though i could see i think kind it's of still yeah spirit there it's yeah it's totally still there um it's a you know i i i came to him i mean it's funny because he didn't really write much about it um but i came to him through because i knew he had he had served in world war ii and and there's a section of um, of being numerous which is phenomenal it's a mm. longer poem um, actually, I'll just, I'll, I'll read that section because it's, it's yeah. related to his role. <clears throat> this is section 14 of Up Being Numerous, which is from the book with the same title that, that won the Pulitzer. I cannot even now altogether disengage myself from those men with whom I stood in emplacements, in mess tents, in hospitals and sheds and hid in the gullies of blasted roads in a ruined country, among the many men more capable than I. Moikut and a sergeant named Healy, that lieutenant also. How forget that? How talk distantly of the people who are that force within the walls of cities, wherein their cars echo like history down walled avenues in which one cannot speak. Hmm. What year is that written for? 1968. That one, the Pulitzer of the year? Yeah, I think it was it's a, the. It's a collection of poetry that won the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of the oh, yeah. numerous. Check that out, man! It sounds incredible. Yeah, it's great. All right, well, that's uh, that's George Oppen. That's George Oppen and the grotesque. And, uh, but yeah, but, uh, we I'll, recommend... I, do want to talk, I do want to talk very quickly, like why I paired him, right? Yeah, um, and it's worth noting that you know they both had what I think 
um, you know, were fairly intense World War II experiences. <laughs> um, he, they both uh, experienced political persecution. He was part of a sort of exile community in Mexico for years and dealing with a certain degree of paranoia. Um, I think one of the things that he's getting at in that poem is one of the things that um, that is missing, right? Um, from sort of Jan Kopp's perspective, right? Um, and ah, I love the small mounds crying faith. Um, and it's... Kopp does say he acknowledges the the position of people who believe in a natural world. He is affirmatively denying the yeah. reality of that position. Right, right. right. There is yeah. no nature anymore. Um, so the belief in nature is only another aspect of the, the prison. Um, but I mean, I, I agree with you both substantively and sentimentally, but it, it's not something that he overlooks this idea no. of uh, a nature outside of. Uh, right. But, but I would say that the, it's not just nature, right? It's also, you know, the small nouns crying faith. It's also, I think, the object of the poem itself, right? The nouns are, you know, you're talking about the importance of the nouns. Um, and I think he means that in terms of the nouns as reference and the nouns as words themselves, right? Um, and, and that is a sort of, you know, kind of human creation that is not um, an impersonal machine, right? A, 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 you know, a, a pure mechanism, but rather um, something else uh, that leads Without us, eyes. Yeah. yeah, leads us back into a sense of sort of uh, mystery um, and wonder. Mystery and wonder, my friend. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs> 